فضل الله من شكر الحديث الرابع العشر عن ابن مسعود رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يحل دم امرئ مسلم الا باهدى ثلاث الثيب الزاني والنفس بالنفس والتارك لدينه المفارق للجماعه رواه البخاري ومسلم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه وبعد This is hadith number 14 in the 40 hadiths of An-Nawawi رحمه الله This hadith is reported by Ibn Mas'ud رضي الله عنه His name is Abdullah Abdullah Ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu he says the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallama said la yahillu damu mri'im muslim the blood of a person who is a muslim is not halal in other words no one should shed the blood of a person who is a muslim illa bi'ihda thalath except for one of three reasons. Al-thayyibu al-zani wal-nafsu bin-nafsi wal-tariku li-deenihi al-mufariku lil-jama'a. Al-thayyibu al-zani Before I talk about al-thayyibu al-zani, I think it's important that we go back to the Maqasid, al-shari'iyya, the main goals of the sharia, and this is a topic we discussed before. The sharia has five main goals, five important things that the law of Islam wants to achieve or to establish. The first of these is the protection of religion. The law of Islam aims to protect religion because religion is the purpose of our existence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us so that we can worship him and that has to be protected. Allah has said in the Quran, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ and I did not create the men and the spirits for any other reason, but except that they must worship me. There are many forces in the world today that fight against religion. In other words, the world today does not want religion. People want a world without religion. And a world without religion according to the Sharia, is not a world at all because religion is the purpose of our existence. Allah brought us in the world not to eat or drink or enjoy ourselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put us in the world so that we can worship him. So if we abolish the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
then we have abolished the purpose of our lives. So the main goal of the Sharia, or goal number one of the Sharia, is the protection of religion. The second goal of the Sharia is the protection of the nafs, the protection of life. Life is sacred and life must be protected. And that's one of the five goals of the Sharia, to make sure that your life and my life are protected. No one has the right to take away your life, and no one has the right to take away the life of any individual for that matter, without just cause. But at the same time, we have to realize that according to the Sharia, the community is much more important than the individual. When the rights of the individual clash with the rights of the community, the rights of the community are more important than the rights of the individual and the community has to be protected from the individual. Number three is the protection of our minds. The Sharia wants to protect our minds to make sure that our minds are not intoxicated, to make sure that we have the ability to reason. And for this reason, the Sharia has forbidden intoxicants, alcohol, drugs, and other such things. The fourth goal of the Sharia, the fourth of the Maqasid al-Shari'iya, is the protection of family. Our families must be protected and our integrity has to be protected. Our children should be protected from corruption. They should be protected from adultery and fornication. They should be protected from all forms of garbage that corrupt the mind. That is an aim of the Sharia. And the fifth and final aim of the Sharia is the protection of wealth. Your wealth has to be protected. Our money must be protected. And the Sharia has instituted certain laws that ensure that your money is protected. Stealing is forbidden. Usury is forbidden. Trickery is forbidden. And all other things that may cause you to lose your property. So this hadith is very, very much connected to the maqasid al-shari'iyya, the aims of the sharia. Because the Messenger wasallam says the blood of every Muslim is protected except for three reasons. For these three reasons, the protection is not there. Because in this case, we are looking at the individual and looking at the society and the rights of the society have to be protected over the rights of the individual. Al-Thayyib al-Zani, I'll start by explaining the meaning of Thayyib. A Thayyib is a person who's had lawful sexual intercourse in marriage. Before a person has lawful sexual intercourse in marriage, he is considered a bikri. Bikri means virgin. And this in Arabic applies to both men 
and women. A man who's never had lawful sexual intercourse in marriage is considered a bickle. And a lady who's never had lawful sexual intercourse in marriage is also considered a bickle. If she had unlawful sexual intercourse, we don't know about that. As far as we are concerned, she's a bickle. And for a man, he's a bickle. Because the intercourse he had was not lawful, and we don't know about it. So a thayyib in this case, we're talking about a man who is married, or a woman who is married, or a man who married and divorced, or a woman who married and divorced. Or a man who married and the wife died, and a lady who married and the husband died. These are considered thayyib. So once a person marries, and the person has had sexual intercourse, inside marriage, the person is a thayyib. A thayyib zani, a thayyib who commits zina. Zina in the Sharia, I want to start by apologizing, I'll be a bit explicit, but this is learning and everyone has to know. Zina according to the Sharia is when a man puts his manhood into a woman at least the length of the head of the manhood. That is considered zina. Less than that, the zina has not taken place. Qadrul hashafa, at least the length of the head of the manhood. This is considered zina. Zina can be established in two ways. The first way is confession. The person has to confess that he committed zina. Failure to which and a punishment cannot be administered. The second way is to have four witnesses who witnessed the act of zina. And when we say four people who witnessed the act of zina, we do not mean people who saw them entering a room or people who saw them covered in blankets or people who saw them naked. We don't mean that. We mean four people who checked and witnessed the penetration. The four witnesses must say, we saw and checked, and we are sure that there was penetration, four of them, which is very, very difficult. It's very difficult to catch two people in the act of adultery and for four people to witness the penetration. This simply shows that this is not an issue that the Sharia takes lightly. If the Sharia took this issue lightly, there would be confusion in our society. Everyone would accuse everyone of zina in the way that we do it today. Anyone who is seen alone 
with a woman in, in a car, for example, has already made zina. Anyone who's seen entering a hotel with a woman has already committed zina. If this were an Islamic countries, such people would be grabbed and arrested and given 80 strokes for suspecting someone of zina without evidence. You don't open your mouth and say someone has committed zina if you do not have proper evidence. I think we covered that when we did Surah An-Nur. So Athayibu is a person who already knows a woman or a woman who already knows a man. Azani is a person who commits the act that we just described. The gravity of zina differs from circumstance to circumstance. A young man making zina has committed haram, but he's not the same as an elderly man who makes zina. An elderly man does not need zina. He's grown up. A 50-year-old, a 60-year-old that makes zina is worse than a 20-year-old that makes zina, and both of them have committed haram, something that Allah has forbidden. The Messenger وسلم, said, there are three, I mean, three people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not even going to look at on the day of judgment. And he will not speak to them. And he is not going to purify them. And the Messenger وسلم, mentioned among them a big person, an elderly person who makes zina. Because this is more grave than a young man that makes zina, but the young man has also committed sin. Zina, for example, with a mahram, someone who is your mahram, someone who's maybe your niece, or someone who's your auntie, is not the same as zina with an ordinary person. Zina with a mahram, is more grave than zina with a person that's not related to you. Zina with a mahram is incest. And these crimes, even in the Christian Bible, are punishable by death. Even in the Bible, in the time of Musa alayhi salatu wasalam, such crimes were all punishable by death. A person who commits incest would be killed. And a person who commits adultery would be killed. Zina with someone who lives far away, someone you do not know, is not the same as Zina with your friend's daughter. It's not the same. It's Zina quite right, and it's haram. But a person making zina with someone else is not the same as a person who goes to his neighbor and makes zina with his neighbor's daughter or makes zina with, with his neighbor's wife. There was a time the Messenger said, 
والدخول على النساء beware of entering the places where women sit do not enter their kitchens their places to sit with them beware don't do that one of the ansari radiyallahu anhu said ya rasul allah o messenger of allah araital hamu what if the person is my in-law my brother's wife that's my sister-in-law am i not supposed to sit where she's sitting for example or enter the place where she's found for example the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam said alhamu almaut your in-law is death meaning it's even worse that's even worse your in-law is not your mahram in the sense that you may travel with her just the two of you or sit with her and zina has happened several times between a man and his sister-in-law sadaqa rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam the words of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam are true make no mistake about it ma yantiqu anil hawa he does not speak of his own desire in huwa illa wahyun yuha everything is wahy has anyone ever heard of someone who slept with the sister in law you ever heard of that everyone has everyone has and what did the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam say alhamu your in law almaut is worse it's death watch out take care but in our lack of fiqh lack of understanding of our religion of islam a man leaves his house and leaves his wife in the care of his brother is that correct it's not correct it's not correct so zina with someone maybe your friend's neighbor or your neighbor is worse than zina with someone we don't know but it's zina and it's haram for example zina in makkah and zina in lusaka is it the same which one is worse zina zina in makkah you have to be afraid you have to fear allah makkah is a holy land and to have the audacity to go and make zina in in makkah وَمَنْ يُرِدْ فِيهِ بِإِلْحَادٍ بِظُلْمٍ نُذِقُهُ مِنْ عَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ Zina in Sha'ban or in Rajab and Zina in Ramadan which one is worse? Zina in Ramadan We're not saying Zina in Rajab is okay It's not okay But a person making zina in Ramadan is certainly worse than a person making zina in any other month. So I said zina is zina. But in some circumstances maybe we should call it, call it aggravated zina. <laughs> aggravated. You know aggravated? 
for example, robbery. When a person comes and steals, that's robbery. But if he comes to steal and points a gun at you, that's aggravated robbery. So zina in Ramadan is aggravated zina. Yeah, there's no bail for uh, uh, aggravated robbery. Nam. So athayibu azani. A person who is a thayib and he commits zina, then his blood becomes halal. Naturally, his blood is supposed to be protected. The blood of a Muslim is haram. We cannot shed the blood of a Muslim. But once he's involved, he's a thayib, he married before, or he is married, and he commits zina, then the blood becomes halal. Halal for everyone, meaning anyone who catches him can kill him. No. Things are not done like that in Islam. In Islam, it's always in the hands of the ruler, the judge. He has to go to court, and the judge has to pronounce him guilty. And when he is pronounced guilty, the judge is going to prescribe a punishment. Not everyone can carry out the punishments. It's in the hands of the Wali al-Amr. But you would think, and some people think, it is cruel. A person commits adultery, and then he is killed or stoned to death. You don't understand. There's so much at stake here. We are protecting a society as opposed to an individual. Zina brings about a lot of confusion in the society. You may not understand, but ask someone, La qaddar Allah, may Allah protect our families. Ask someone whose wife was involved in zina and ask them what they felt like doing to, 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 to the man who committed zina with their wife. Or you just imagine yourself what you would do with, with a man that would commit zina with your wife. You, you want to kill them. This is jarima. It's a crime. That no one wants in society. We want our wives to be safe. We want our daughters to be safe. We want our children to be safe. So if you are going to be sentimental over one criminal that's being killed at the expense of an entire society, then we don't have a society at all. And this jarima of zina, once it enters a society, that society is cursed. The moment there is zina in any society, it's a cursed society. When zina comes in, just know everything bad is going to come into that society. When they open the doors of zina, they make zina easy for the country. Evil is forever going to follow such, such countries. You can count them if you like. Countries where people don't care about zina. Then you look at their societies. You look at the safety of, of their children. 
They're not good societies at all. It's difficult, and you'd be very, very worried if your daughter left on her own to go and study in the United States, you would know it's over, game over. Why? You know the society. There's no security, absolutely none whatsoever. But if your daughter said she's going to study in Saudi Arabia, for example, you'd have very little to worry about. Because the society is protected. So once the society opens up to zina, all mischief penetrates that society. So this is one of the maqasid al-shari'iyya, the protection of your family. You want your family to be protected, not so. I think only those that don't care about the protection of their families would stand up and speak against the punishment that is given to Izani. There is a difference between the punishment that we give to a thayyib, and I explained that a thayyib is a person who already had lawful sexual intercourse inside marriage, and the punishment that we give to a person who is a bikr after the other, inshallah. The difference in punishment between a thayyib, a person who's known lawful intercourse before, and a bikr, a person who's never known lawful intercourse before, is that a bikr is not killed. They're not to be stoned to death. They're supposed to be given 100 strokes. The strokes should neither be light nor too hard. They're supposed to be right in the, in the middle. They should not be too light and they should not be too heavy. But they should be enough as a punishment, as a deterrent. 100 strokes and they should be exiled from one year. Meaning they're to be sent away from their town for one year then after one year, they may come back. That is the difference in the punishment. Christians around you will claim that Islam is a cruel religion because Christ taught forgiveness. Because a lady was brought to Jesus and she was accused of having committed adultery. And the people wanted to stone her to death. So she was brought to Jesus and they wanted his verdict on the woman. And Jesus said to them, let he that has never committed this crime be the first one to throw a stone or to cast a stone at this woman. The person who's never made zina should be the first one to cast a stone at the woman. This story to me has many holes in it. The first problem with this story is that Jesus was not a judge and Jesus was not a governor. 
And Jesus did not have any position of authority in that country. Therefore, it does not make sense to get someone who is guilty of a crime and take him to Jesus who is not a judge and not a president with no position of authority and ask for judgment. Number one. Number two, even the people of Jesus, the Jews, did not have any authority. They were colonized by the Romans. They didn't have any power to kill anyone until the Romans had found that person guilty. Until the Romans said, you can kill him because the Romans were the government. The Jews were not the government. They were being ruled by foreigners. It explains why the Jews could not kill Jesus. In the first place, they wanted to kill him, but they could not. They kept going to, um, is it Pontius Pilate? To explain to him what Christ had said. What did they want? They wanted Pontius Pilate to condemn him and say, therefore, you must kill him. Because Pontius Pilate is in authority. The Jews don't have any authority. If they wanted, they could have picked him up and crucified him. But they couldn't do that because that's going against, against the government. In the same way that you and I cannot catch someone and crucify him or stone him to death. You think the government would spare us? Say, no, we are Muslims. We are a group of Muslims. We caught this man committing adultery. Therefore, we're going to stone him to, to, to death. We're not allowed to do that because we are not the government. So does it make sense that these Jews would go and ask for a verdict from Jesus, who is not even a governor, he's not even a counselor, he's not anything in the, in the government? To you, does it make sense? And naturally, if this was brought to Jesus, he, he has to get himself you know, disentangled from this, this situation. He has to get out of it. Because if he said, yeah, go ahead, stone him to death, or stone her to death, the moment they finish killing him, when the Roman soldiers land, Christ is in trouble. Who gave you permission to start ordering people to stone people to death? That's the first weakness in the story. The second weakness, even if we assume that Jesus had the power to have her stoned, and he had the power to have her killed, and then we assume he decided to forgive her. Does that mean zina is now halal and no one shall be punished? Is that what it means? If a person is guilty of something, and the president says, we have pardoned the person. We've forgiven the person. Does it make the crime halal? How many killers have been pardoned by the president? Every, is it 24th October? Yeah, every year the president pardons a number of killers, right? He asks that they should be released from prison. But is it okay for anyone to go and kill uh, uh, basing their evidence on the fact that the president has pardoned killers. It's utter nonsense. So the Christians assume no one should be punished for adultery because Jesus said the one 
who has never committed zina, let him be the first one to, to, to stone the woman. And to me, it doesn't make sense. It also doesn't make sense that all the Jews that brought the woman had committed zina. Is that logical? Not even one of them could throw a stone. So the Christians are telling us everyone has committed zina. Is, is that logical? Some people commit zina, others don't. If a person were brought to this mosque here and someone said, let the one who's, who's never committed zina be the first one to stone the person, I think there are a couple of individuals, alhamdulillah, who never committed zina and they would stone the person. It's not true to say everyone has committed zina. What kind of society would that be? And then if that is religion, what kind of religion would that be? Where no one should be punished for any crime. Where you make zina and all you have to say is, have you never made zina? Anyone who, who's never committed zina should be the one to punish me. No, no, we all sinners, so go ahead. So someone murders, no, no, we all sinners, please go ahead. Someone takes someone else's wife. No, 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 we are all sinners. Please just continue. It's a recipe for disaster. Islam is a realistic religion. Islam believes in practicability. Something has to be practicable. I'm not saying practical, practicable. You cannot institute laws that cannot be applied. Laws must be laws that can be applied. Something illogical also is what is said about someone who slaps you on the right cheek. You give them the other cheek to, to, to slap as well. It sounds very nice for a teaching, very, very nice. But the question is, is that practicable? Is that applicable? What's the use having laws that cannot be applied? So let's be realistic. And Islam is a very realistic religion, a religion that wants to protect society, a religion that believes in the rights of the society as opposed to the rights of individuals. We are here to worship Allah, and Allah has said, Kuntum khayra ummah, you are the best of all generations. Ukhrijat nas that came from among the people. We are the best because ta'muruna bil ma'roof, we command what is right, and we forbid what is wrong, and we believe in Allah. So there are three aspects in the hadith. The next one is an-nafsu bin-nafs, which we will discuss in the next muhadara, insha'Allah. وصلى الله تعالى على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين